All right, Colossians is where we are. And Nathan, raise your hand, Nathan. So you guys can all throw stones at Nathan. Raise your hand over there. He messed up my message this morning. And I'll tell you why. So my sermon title is Fight. Any of you guys competitive? Is anybody competitive in sports? You know, you can't lose to chess game, crossword puzzle. Doesn't matter what it is, you want to win, right? This message is for you. We'll have context for where that title comes out of in Colossians this morning. But this is how Nathan messed me up this morning. So we're back there in prayer. We always have, we always have a topic that we like to discuss. And he begins it this morning with Psalm 4610, which says, Be still and know that I'm God. You guys know that verse? Have you ever needed to just be still before God and allow God to do what God's going to do? We said in the, new, uh, the NASB, there says, stop striving. So I just start giggling out loud because I'm going to tell you this morning to strive. <laughs> the Bible tells us to not strive and to strive. We're going to give context to that this morning. But here's, here's the main idea. When in our work, in our energy, in our fighting, in our competition, as we, as we engage in our relationship with the Lord and with other people, there's, there's an idea that we need to put forth as much effort as possible. And again, we're going to give definition to it because the Bible gives us the definition that that energy, that effort is in Jesus and for Jesus alone. This isn't self-effort. This isn't putting forth your, your A effort and your energy and yourself. This, is, this all revolves around who Jesus Christ is, who he is in us, and who he is working through us. But it's, again, as Nathan brought up this morning, this whole idea of be still and know that I'm God, stop striving. You know, we looked up the word this morning, and it has this idea of just let go, release, relax, chill out. And we're going to begin here this morning because as we look at this Colossian church, they are, they're, it's kind of like a, a no, it's a, an unpopular community. Nobody knows about it. So if you tell people, if somebody asks where you're from and you say Alpharetta or you say Cumming or you say Roswell, people just look at you like, where? So where do you tell them that you're from? Atlanta. Everybody knows that you're from Atlanta. But nobody knows anything about Alpharetta unless you live in this community and you're familiar with it in some fashion. Same thing with the Colossians. This community, it's, it's a, nobody knows about it. It's kind of in the middle of nowhere. It's off the beaten path or tied into larger communities. But this letter that Paul is writing to them, he's writing not to the unsaved. He's writing to those that are, he calls them, you're, you're holy, you're saints, you're brothers and sisters in Christ. And getting into this idea of you, you are the ones who have let go. And you know and you understand that one, that you're created You've, re you've responded to that. So this, this community, again, this is filled with Greco-Roman paganism and all of their culture and all that it means. There's a very large Jewish population there, so there's a knowledge of uh, this, this proclamation in the community that there's one God in opposition to the multiple gods of the Greco-Roman culture. But there's individuals that have responded to the information about Jesus Christ. They've heard about God's grace. They've heard about the message of the gospel. They've 
expressed faith. They're expressing love to one another. They're expressing hope in the promises that God has given to them. And as Paul is writing to them to encourage them, not to tear them down, but to build them up and encourage them in their faith, he says, I thank God for each and every one of you that out of the world that Jesus has brought you to himself. And then we sat in the, his prayer last week as he's, he's asking God to help you to mature, that God would bring you into life's circumstances that will cause you to experientially know your creator. Do you not want that? I mean, again, we, we sat in it in prayer this morning. We sat in it in worship. Um, God, show me your glory. I want to know you. I want, I want to experience you. I, re, I read all these accounts in the word of God. God, I want that. But have your way among me, Lord. Whatever your will is for my life, whatever you need to do in me and through me, let your will be done. And I bring all of this up because as Paul is expressing these ideas of, one, their response to the gospel, two, his prayers for them, he now begins to talk about the son of God's love. And he elevates Jesus to that first preeminent position that he needs to be in every single one of our lives, always. But as he, as he begins to talk about Jesus, he brings up the idea of redemption, that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. Brought up in uh, verses 19 and 20, this idea that we have been reconciled to God. Jesus is our peace. We have the forgiveness of sins. And where I want to just sit in and establish ourselves this morning and know and understand, Paul is writing to believers. And as I am communicating, I, I, am, I am trusting that you know and that you understand that you were created. I'm trusting that the majority of you have responded to the gospel in the sense of like, here, here's a contract that's been laid before us. And in the contract, in the information of the good news, Jesus says, I have redeemed you through the blood of my cross. Jesus, our God, became a man, the very image of God, died for our sins on the cross, suffered, poured out his blood, and that was the payment for your redemption, which means that he has reached into humanity and he has paid the price for your purchase. As we talk about his cross and the blood of his cross, this is all wrapped around his work and his work alone. But he sets this contract before us, this New Testament, this new covenant, and has all the parameters of everything that he has performed. But he tells us and offers to us, do you want to sign your name on this dotted line or not? You can accept it or you can reject it. And again, this is, this is a crossroads that all of us not only do for the first time, but we have to continually remind ourselves that I am not my own. I have been created, and not only have I been created, I have been purchased. So when you sign your name on that contract, when you respond to the gospel, when you express faith in Jesus Christ, you are saying, I have been purchased purchased. I am not my own. My life is not my own. My life is his. And if we're going to sit in this information today as, he, as he's communicating. We all used to be under the ownership of another. And Jesus has reached out 
through his glory, through his um, submission to the Father, for his submission all the way to the agony and the humiliation of the death on the cross, he's redeemed us, offering to purchase us, and we respond to him by signing. Okay, we're all in that same position. Put your name on the contract. You were owned. You were not your own. And this is where faith, love, hope, all these expressions pour out of us. But I want to sit in this, uh, the definition in verse 19, this idea of reconciliation, because it's going to come up quite a bit as Paul continues on. And here's the idea. So, anybody reconciled a bank account before? I'm an accountant. I do reconciliations almost every single day, whether it's a bank account, a brokerage account, investments. As we sit in this idea of reconciliation, it's bringing things into harmony is what the word revolves around. But when it comes to God and when it comes to a bank account, an investment or something, you have the definition of what is real. Here's what's real. Here's what is true. And in reconciling something, we now, I have a software where I'm going to make the software equal what is real and bring those things into harmony. And this is where Jesus is the image of the invisible God. He has always been and always will be in perfect harmony with the Father and with the Spirit. He is the image. He never changes. He never shifts. He never moves. There's no change in balance in what is real. He is always real. And what he has done on the cross is stamps that same image on us, reconciling us, bringing us into harmony with our creator. Very powerful imagery. But what happens in our lives? We constantly shift. And this is the warning that we're going to sit in this morning as, as Paul is encouraging us. We need this. We're, we have been reconciled singularly to Jesus Christ at salvation. As we walk with him, we're, it's told that we all shift, we all drift, we all get spotted by the world, and we constantly come to him in confession, and he is the one who is faithful and just to cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. He keeps us in perfect harmony with him. And I bring this up. You're going to see as we flow through some of the words. Um, it's going to be a mouthful. I told you last week, Paul is a theological genius, and it takes some time to sit and just think about what he's saying and organize what he's saying, too. So verse 21 is where we're going to start. We'll read into chapter 2 a little bit this morning. And you, who once were alienated, you're a foreigner, you're a stranger, and enemies hostile in your mind by wicked works, Yet now he who is reconciled, sorry, my eyes are not working. I have like this total heartbeat twitch in my eyeball. Pray for my eyeball. All right. You who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he is reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and blameless and above reproach in his sight. If indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which I, Paul, became a minister. I, I now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up in my flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ 
for the sake of the body, which is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God, which was given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, the mystery which has been hidden from ages and from generations, but now has been revealed to his saints. Like I said, what a mouthful. To them God willed, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. To this end I also labor, here's our word, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. For I want you to know what great conflict, it's the same word as striving there, what great conflict I have for you and those in Laodicea, and for as many as have not seen my face in the flesh, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, and attaining to all riches of the full assurance of understanding to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of, the wis of wisdom and knowledge. Oh, my. So rich. So we go back to this position of reconciliation. Jesus is sitting there as that mediator, taking the very image of God in all of God's perfection, and through faith in Christ, he is the one who is doing the reconciling. He has brought us into perfect harmony with the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And now as Paul is communicating in his role as a minister, he's taking on that same role of a reconciler, which is the same role that we take on as we engage with one another. Paul says that God has made him a steward in God's kingdom, in the body of Christ. A steward, it's a, it's a manager, it's a business administrator. But Paul said, this is, this is the position and the role that God has placed me within his body to bring about reconciliation, to take you and introduce you to Jesus. And not that Paul is the one who is doing the reconciling, Paul's just providing the handshake, as, as Corey was saying earlier, just as we share the gospel, we're providing the handshake. Some, it's that first seed, others, it's watering. God is the one who is giving the increase. God is the one who is challenging the heart. God is the one who is placing his word into our hearts. He's the one that is bringing forth that, that fruit. And this, this idea that we begin with in verse 21, again, this is, I'm not going to spend long on this, but it's something because we're all familiar with. Uh, but this definition that prior to this reconciling point in your life with Jesus, you were an alien, a stranger, a foreigner, under the ownership and the authority of another king in another kingdom, defined by the Bible as Satan and his kingdom and his will, death ruling and reigning over us through sin. You were an enemy. Your life before Jesus was in hostility in your mind, in your heart. Again, we, we have to take these things with caution. We don't want to just paint everybody as, you know, the worst sinners and gross and disgusting sins and all this kind of stuff, but just this reality of definition. You were unholy, you were blameworthy, 
and you were reproachable before God. And what it is that Jesus has done for us through faith in him, through his payment on the cross, is he's caused us to be the exact opposite of everything that I just said. As our priest, he is the one who has made us blameless. You're spotless. Right? Just sit in this reality. You know all of your sins. You know your issues. You know what you don't like about you. You think you know what other people see in you, and it bothers you, yeah? When God looks at you, what does he see? His image. Does that not cause you just to be still and to cease and to stop freaking out? We all battle with you know, our insecurities, our emotions, things that bother us about ourselves, things that bother us about other people. We sit in all these definitions, allowing all these other people to define who we are, and it has nothing to do with reality because our new reality through faith is the image of the creator. And it's, it's one of these things that just when you... This isn't just theology talk. This is, just isn't church talk. This is what's real. As we look in the image of the mirror, we don't, we don't see reality. We see through the fogged up mirror and it's, it's dim and we think we see what's true. But we have to sit in these definitions. You're spotless. You are above reproach. The enemy accuses you before the Father day in and day out. Look at what they just did. Look at what they're thinking. Look at what they're saying. Look at what they're doing. Look at how they don't image you. And what's the Father's response? He looks to your defender, Jesus. What do you say? I've reconciled them by my blood. They are clean. They are spotless. Own that identity in him. When you're agitated, when you're striving, this is, this is this moment of be still, let go. You have his goodness, you have his grace, you have everything that you need all wrapped, in, uh, all wrapped up in him because he's reconciled you specifically in the body of his flesh. We're going to save that for next week. But as he's talking about, you know, Jesus wasn't just some apparition. This is really God in the flesh. He really did die, and he really did rise again. Presented you holy and blameless, above reproach, in the sight of God. And then there's this if statement. And this is the caution that we have to sit in. You can sit with the... Expert of the experts in Greek and Hebrew and culture and, you know, the people who write all the commentaries, and it's literally 50-50 down the line. Is the if statement, is Paul saying, if it's possible, and it is possible, or is he saying that if he's just given this warning in, like, a, in a theological box and it's really not possible for you to what? What's his warning? To move away. If you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, these words, you know, you're in the foundation of Jesus, 
you are firm and you are set in him and you are not moved away from the hope of the gospel. There's this, where do you sit in the warning, I guess, is the question. For me, I sit in the reality that I know in whom I believe. I know that my salvation is secure. I know that I shift daily. I know that I drift. I feel it. I sense it. But I also sense him in me every single day, constantly bringing me back to himself. So for me, like, I, I am secure I am hopeful, I am confident in whom I believe, and it is impossible for me to lose my salvation. And I ask God often, God, keep me from ever becoming an apostate, from falling away intentionally, from rejecting intentionally, from getting irritated with God, God not meeting my expectations. So now God just made me angry, and I'm going to walk away from him and go do my own thing. God, keep that heart from me. Keep me continuing in your foundation, in your steadfastness, because I hear the warnings about shifting in the Bible. Our culture is extremely shifty. Jesus warns us and he he encourages us to build our house upon the rock, that when the storms of life come and beat against you, that your foundation is sure and secure, and there's nothing that is going to take you away from the love of Jesus Christ. Nothing. Not even you. However, is your faith built on the foundation of Jesus, or is your foundation built upon some shifting cultural, religious, weird image of an idol that somebody has called Jesus? Like, this is, this is where you need to work these things out. Like, you sit in the confidence and the truth, in the reality, that, that again, the, the truth of who God is, that you've been reconciled to that image. Paul, as he is encouraging them, he's giving them that warning that shifting is possible, but at the same time enabling us to have great confidence that even as I drift in my heart and my mind and behaviors, there God always is keeping me reconciled to himself. He says, and this is, this is, this is challenging if, um, when Paul talks about being a minister, so look at verse 24, that he's rejoicing in his sufferings. We're going to give some definition to that, but he makes this comment that he's filling up in his flesh what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ as a minister. So, is Paul suffering in an atoning way for your sins? Does that make sense? So, is Paul saying that Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient? Jesus' afflictions were not filled and were not complete on the cross. Is that what Paul is saying? Absolutely not, because that contradicts all of the rest of revealed Scripture. So when, it refer, when the New Testament refers to Jesus on the cross, it never calls it an affliction. So this word for affliction, this is where we get the word tribulation from. And what it's talking about is when Jesus was a man, did Jesus suffer afflictions, tribulations, persecutions, suffering? Yeah? 
So as Paul is writing this letter to the church in Colossae, and he has gone through, you know, he's gone through Asia Minor, more than likely he's sitting in a prison cell in Rome, would be our understanding of which imprisonment he is in. So this is about 30 years after he came to Christ. So he's had 30 years of following Jesus. But when Jesus knocked him down on that Damascus road, what did he tell Paul in those few days? All the things that you were going to what for my name's sake? Suffer. So, turn to Matthew chapter 5 really quick. This just helps give us context and clarity to what Paul is referring to, because really, he is repeating the words of Jesus. So this is known as the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, Jesus is teaching to the multitudes, lists out all these beatitudes that we refer to them as, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, the meek, those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in hearts, the peacemakers. Look at verse 10 of chapter 5. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for what? For my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So again, as Paul is, he's saying, I'm rejoicing. I have joy in my relationship with the Lord where I am today, even though he is in shackles, he's in prison, in that context and what it looked like. He's saying, I am rejoicing in my sufferings because my sufferings, they are the will and the work of God in my life on behalf of you. Paul, if he kept his mouth shut, he would not be in prison. If he didn't preach the gospel, not only preaching Jesus to Jews, but if he did not preach the message of the gospel to Gentiles, Paul would not have been in prison. The reason why he was in prison is because he opened his mouth in the name of Jesus so that those individuals, regardless of who they were, how many or how few, so that they could hear about their Savior. And this, so you, okay, just sit in Paul's words a little bit, where he is thanking God that they heard about the grace of God, that they heard the word of the gospel in truth, that they responded in faith and love and hope. Do his words start to take on some weight and emphasis? Again, this is, this is, these are not words coming out of just some theologian shoved away in a library. This is a man who is radically changed by the nature and character and the message of the gospel. A man who had that contract set before him and pushed it away from him multiple times. And not only did he push the contract away from him, he started swinging at everybody who presented that contract to him again, right? He was persecuting the church. So as you sit in the suffering that he went through in his life, it was all for the sake of Christ. And again, this is something that continues today. That is, it, have, how, how do I, what's the right tense? Um, has Jesus taken you down a path that has caused suffering in your life 
because of your relationship with him, yes or no? That's what Paul is saying. What is, what is lacking in the afflictions of the body of Christ? There's always more to endure. There's always more to be done. There's work to be done. And as you do the work that Jesus has for you, you will endure suffering. People are going to hate you. Your family is going to turn their back on you. You are going to be ridiculed. You are going to be mocked. You are going to be maligned. But Jesus says you're favored and you were fortunate. Happy are you when they persecute you, when they revile you, when they arrest you, when they stone you, when they cut your head off, when they leave you out of all the reindeer games. Happy are you because great is your reward in heaven. And all of this is revolving around your relationship with Jesus. But what's Paul's purpose in the suffering? Like, why, why go through all the, what's, is it worth it? Is it, is it worth it? A lot of, but a lot of people would say no. It's not worth it to be alone. It's not worth it to be ridiculed. It hurts for people to make fun of me. It hurts for people not to like me. See, it's easy when we get in a group where we're all like-minded, right? But you get out into the world and you mention the name of Jesus. Lincoln wore his Jesus shirt in the airport. And, oh, you're one of those. And gets into this whole, lady, I'm just trying to get on the airplane. Leave me alone, right? It's not, it's not comfortable. And that's where the warning about not shifting, not moving away from the reconciliation. Why, why would we move away from a blameless, spotless, unreproachable position in the image of the very God. When we sit in clarity, I would never willingly do that. But my flesh is stupid, and I, and I drift. Again, this is, this is where all the, the, the it is worth it because this is the only thing that matters. Why we, you know, Paul began with Jesus, right? It's Jesus first. It is all about Jesus. It's all his work. It's all his effort. It's all his energy. He's the one that's purchased us. You are now him. Paul begins to talk about us, others, who we were outside of Christ, yet what Jesus has done, and now he's talking about himself and the effort and the energy that he has put forth. It is for the singular purpose that Christ would be formed in each and every one of us. What is he going out into the world and doing? Him we preach. Not your politics, not your opinions, not your hobbies, not your sports, not your fanaticism, not your personality. We preach Jesus, and we preach him crucified. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. The just shall live by faith in him. We trust him and walk with him. The whole goal, everything that we do, the whole reason we are gathered here this morning is in response to our creator. You're not here to listen to me. We're here to fellowship with him. We're here to sing our songs and the songs that he has placed within the transformed heart to just pour these things out. We are here to fellowship with one another. We're going to sit in these words until Jesus comes back because this is how I know him. Again, you sit in the words of Paul. When I just read through them, I, I go cross-eyed just reading them. But when you sit in just quiet meditation 
And it's, it's like, ladies, uh, just examining your diamond ring. You know, you've got this wedding ring on, and, you know, you'll see it sparkle every now and then. But when you really just pause and look at that gem from all of its different facets, the glory of light that radiates out of this rock. And again, this is what we're talking about. When we ask to see the glory of God, God, I want to see you in all of your facets radiate, not just in my life, but in all of our lives. May Jesus be made known in each and every one of us and through each and every one of us. Paul says it's him that we preach. There's a warning and admonishment. So there's, um, there's the warning, which is the consequences. Um, it was just when we went to the, uh, the men's conference, when you get off the 285 and get onto the 20, there's about 30 gigantic signs that's, you know, this is a sharp curve, uh, speed limit 65, you better slow down to about 20. Uh, it's got big old pictures of the semis rolling over. Now, do I look at those warning signs and say, what, what a bunch of jerks. I can, I can handle this quarter. It's 65, no problem. You know, the warning is there for what? It's, it's a kindness. Whoever placed all of those signs, there's been multiple accidents on that curve. And they have made it completely obvious to anybody who has eyeballs, you better slow down or you are going to be in trouble. That's what this idea, as we engage with other human beings, we need to warn one another, remind each other of what the consequences are of remaining outside of Jesus. And then when we are in him, what the warnings are of drifting, of shifting, of not being obedient, of not being loving and kind and gracious, of not pressing into your relationship with God so that he can produce his desired fruit in you according to his will and his time, right? That's what it means to warn every man and every woman. And not just warning, but teaching, which is what we're doing right now. Because we want wisdom. We want the wisdom which comes from God. And just as Jesus has presented you reconciled before the Father, the work of a minister, and all of us are ministers to one degree or another, the work of a servant of God is to help others to be reconciled to God, to present your fellow brothers and sisters before God as spotless. Here, Paul is working, he is laboring to present every man perfect in Christ Jesus. And that's through the counsel of God's word, that's through its teaching, that's through the actions and behaviors of Paul and the lives of others. And again, this, this exhortation that we have. So verse 29, this is why he labors, while, why he toils, why he strives, and where I got the word fight from. It means to struggle, to fight, to strive, to wrestle. The idea comes, the word has the idea of make every effort, do everything possible with intensity, with straining. And again, this is not in your flesh. Where's the source? According to his working, which is working in me mightily. So when I say fight, like get in the game, get in the competition, um, you know, Paul uses this language elsewhere that at the very end of his life, he says, I have fought the good fight. Right? He finished his race. He finished his course. But the good fight, it's this exact same word like, I fought for Jesus in your life. 
Not I fought for Jesus in my life, like I've got to twist myself into a pretzel unless I do A, B, and C, Jesus isn't going to love me. That's not the fighting that he's talking about, and that gets back to what Nathan brought up this morning of be still, stop striving, let go. Allow God to change you, to transform you, to move you, to direct you. Trust him, hope in him, love him. Now, as he leads you in service, in his name, fight. Put every ounce of effort into your relationship with Jesus Christ. Through his power in you, not through mustering up your energy and your caffeine and all that kind of stuff. Do you understand the difference of Jesus? If you are the one who is leading me to do this action, this behavior, reach to this person, I am absolutely fully weak and dependent upon your strength and your words and your power in my life, which as I look in the mirror, we have this definition. Has he worked mightily in your life? <laughs> he took this Yahoo and all of my sin and all of my grossness, and he has stamped the image of God on me in reconciliation. He has done a mighty work in my life. He does a mighty, miraculous work in my life every day, keeping me aimed at Jesus. Because my dead old man is just as alive and kicking as yours is. I sit with Paul in Romans chapter 7. I, I find this conflict within me. I hear the word of God and I want to do it. But then I look over here. Blake, why aren't you doing what you want to do, you moron? I don't say that about you. I say that about myself. Who's going to save this wretched man? Jesus, where are you? I thought I've been recreated. I've, I've been given your mind. Why do I still think this? I've been given the power to do everything that you've led me to do. Why do I feel like I have so much left undone? Because I'm focused on me. In Romans 8, I walk by the Spirit. Not by my flesh, not by my self-effort, not by my energy. By the Spirit of God who is in me, dwelling in me, Father, Son, in spirit, I'm still. I'm at peace. What all this stuff on the outside looks like, Lord, you're, you're in control of all that. Lord, what it looks like in here, I sum, I'm submitting this heart to you. You own this heart. You own this mind. You own these hands. You own this mouth. How dare I use this mouth for cursing and for blessing. Lord, only let your words flow out of this. Out of the mouth, out of the, right, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Lord, whatever's going on in here, you fix all of this. You transform this heart. You write your word upon this heart. You give me the ideas that, um, you know, lead me in my prayers, lead me in my activities, and I will trust you, trusting that as I put forth effort on a daily basis. It is according to the mighty work that you've already done in me and according to your mighty power that is working in me today. Lord, help me to see that person through your eyes. Help me to speak to them, not my opinion and not my sarcasm and not my words, but, Lord, they're yours. 
I want them to know you. I don't care if you know my name. I don't care if you know the name Calvary Chapel, Chuck Smith, any other popular pastor. I could care less. I want you to know Jesus. And the only way that you know him is through this. This is how I know him. Again, there's a a saying that all you need to be a Calvary Chapel pastor is a pair of blue jeans and a Bible. You You don't need me. You need Jesus. And if that is your need, then whatever is lacking in the suffering of the body of Christ, you put forth your effort, do all that is possible in your relationship with Jesus so that Jesus would be made known and be formed in the lives of other human beings because that's all that matters in the end. And then when you know him, for those of you who know him, how much joy do you have in your life? Do you have a hard life? I got got all kinds of hardships. But my life is truly filled with his abundant joy. That there, there isn't a suffering, there isn't a cost, there isn't an action, there isn't a hurtful thing that could occur in my life that would overtake that joy that is constant. So, Father, we want to give you great thanks for you. We want to give you thanks, Lord, that you've responded to that prayer and our lives are ready to show us your glory. Continue to radiate yourself in our lives, Lord. You tell us that through faith in Jesus Christ, you dwell within each and every one of us, that together we are the body of Christ. We are not alone. We are not isolated, but we've been placed in your body according to your will in this time, in this place, so that we can know you and make you known. We ask that you would fill each one of our minds and our hearts with your Holy Spirit right now in a way, Lord, that causes us to pour forth our worship, our gratitude, our praise. That this would not be some religious exercise, that our minds would not be elsewhere but that all of our senses would be fully fixated upon you, our creator. Do that work in us now, Lord. Make yourself known. There's a mind in this room, Lord, that needs to hear a warning. I ask that you speak to them now through your spirit and through your power. Where there's a soul and a mind, Lord, that needs to hear your encouragement. Let them hear your voice. Or there's a soul, Lord, that's timid about doing the work that you've called them to do. May you well up within, in them, that godly fight, that good fight, the fight worth fighting that you give them the energy, Lord, the power, and the trust. We remember you, your body, the very image of God, dying for our sins, reconciling us, redeeming us, cleansing us. 
broken for us. Remember the blood of this new covenant, this contract. Show us your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.